Please take a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 23. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seat in front of you, you'll find this passage on page 830. If you're new to the Bible, there are large numbers and there are small numbers. The large numbers are chapters. The small numbers are verses. We'll be studying Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 25. Luke is one of four what we call gospel accounts. There are stories of the life and ministry of Jesus. It's not really technically a biography. There are a lot about Jesus that we don't know from the, bio- from the, the, the Gospels, so that's why we wouldn't call them biographies necessarily, but they're as close to a biography of Jesus as we're going to have, and they're accurate. All four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, telling different aspects of Jesus' life, emphasizing different aspects of his character or his ministry. In Luke, we've especially noticed Jesus uh, ministering to outcasts, to the broken, to the poor, And here in Luke 23, verses 1 through 25, we're in a part of the Bible where the passage just preaches itself. And I feel like my job for this week and next week and the several weeks after that as we conclude this book is just to kind of stay out of the way, to not distract from the way that Luke laid this out for us, from the point that he himself is so clearly making over and over again of the sufficiency of Jesus to atone for our sins through his shed blood and his resurrection. We want to let the Holy Spirit use this section of the Bible to change our hearts from the inside out through these life-giving words. So please follow along as I read Luke 23, verses 1 through 25. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. 
I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. On a warm summer night in Vancouver, in the summer of 2011, all mayhem broke loose. Dozens of people had to be taken to hospitals with injuries from stabbings, from being trampled, from being punched and jostled. It was a disaster. Police tried to defuse the situation, wearing full SWAT gear, using tear gas and so forth, but it really didn't help. Instead, several police cars were turned upside down and lit on fire, huge balls of fire throughout the streets of Vancouver that night in what are typically in the middle of uh, very busy intersections. So what was happening? What was going on? All this was the result of the fact that in a hockey stadium a few blocks away, the Vancouver Canucks had just lost to the Boston Bruins in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals. And the fans couldn't take it anymore. They lost their minds. As you well know, though, this was not the first time that mobs of people had been destructive and violent. Some people call this the mob mentality. You know, it's one thing to have one bully in a school. It's another thing when that bully is surrounded by seven other huge hulking guys. You kind of all clear out of the hallway when that crew comes walking through the hallway. So our passage today tells us about this mob mentality, but it's far worse than a bunch of bullies. It's far worse than a hockey riot in Vancouver. This tells us about this mob that had its way with Jesus himself. As you saw in the passage before us that we just read together, Jesus suffered at the hands of wicked men. That's all this point, this passage is trying to tell us. That's the the message of Luke 23, 1 through 25, is Jesus suffered at the hands of wicked men. He endured this to accomplish our redemption, to grant us the freedom from our sins, the forgiveness of our sins that only he as the sinless son of God could provide So what exactly did Jesus suffer? As you read through this, perhaps you were starting to kind of take into account what these details were pointing out about Jesus, about these these enemies of one another who became friends. The idea of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. This shows up in this passage, that old adage. We see five evils that Jesus endured before even going to the cross. The section we'll consider together next Sunday, Lord willing. Five evils that Jesus endured before even going to the cross. The first is in verses 1 through 5. Jesus endured false accusations. Do you notice in verse 2, you have this whole company of Jewish leaders. That's the them there in verse 1. The whole company of them is the Sanhedrin, the name for the Jewish council, who had no authority to crucify Jesus, so they had to take it up a level to the Roman authority. So they brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him. Pilate was the, the governor of this, of this area at this time. And they began to accuse him. And notice what the accusations were. The first is that he's misleading our nation. And maybe the next two are subsets of that one. Otherwise, there, there, there's three here. Uh, so, misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. 
Is the first one true or false? Let's go with false. Like, for one, it's super vague. Maybe they gave more details, and we can say Luke was clearly condensing this account. He wasn't telling us every back and forth in the conversation the way you might in some kind of a you know, a, a record from a courtroom or something like that. Like, we really just have the cliff notes here. So maybe they, by saying he's misleading our nation, maybe they gave some proof, uh, or what they considered to be proof. But wasn't it the other way around? Wasn't it the Jewish leaders were themselves misleading the nation? <clears throat> Secondly, he was forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Is that true or false? They're referring back to chapter 20. It's false. He said to give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. They're just making stuff up at this point. He had said that two or maybe three days before this. But they're lying about this as well. And then third, he's saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Christ meaning Messiah. That's what that word means. He's saying he's the Messiah. He didn't say that a whole lot. A lot of times he would tell people, I have healed you. Go and don't tell anybody what just happened. Because he knew that if they found out that the Messiah was there... They would want either to kill him or to celebrate him and look for him to overcome their nationalistic enemies. When Jesus is like, mm, this really isn't what I came to do. At least certainly not yet. You know, my, my, my mission is to overcome the enemy of the evil one, Satan himself. <clears throat> and so by saying that, that he was calling himself Christ, a king, it is true he considers himself the son of God. They're rightly identifying him in that way. But they're trying to make it seem like he's a king as opposed to Pilate. Someone who's going to be trouble for you if you don't take him off the scene. So this is why you really want to kill him, is what the people are trying to tell Pontius Pilate, this Roman authority. But it's not that kind of king. In fact, the the parallel account in the Gospel of John, in that account, Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Like, I'm not a threat to you politically. My kingdom is of another world. I rule over heaven and earth, not just in opposition to you, Pilate. And so Pilate asked him, are you then the king of the Jews? And it's almost like he's, you can almost imagine him like laughing as he asked this question because Jesus by this time has already been beaten and spit upon. They've already been mocking him. <clears throat> they had him blindfolded and striking him back in verse 64 of the previous chapter. And so you've got this bruised, battered, bloody man standing in front of him probably dirty, exhausted. He's been up all night. Are you the king of the Jews? Because if you are, this, is a whole, this, this whole thing's a joke. That seems to be what's going on here. Jesus, as he did uh, in the previous passage, basically says, you know, I'm not going to engage on this level. Yes, I'm the king of the Jews, but that's, it's not what you're asking. I'm just not going to get into it because I know you're not asking genuine questions here. Same thing with what he does with Herod in the next section here. So that's why he says, yet you have said so. He's admitting, yes, I am, but he's not going to go into the long story of I'm not what you think I am. Pilate turned to the chief priests in the crowds. Clearly, it seems he's probably asked a lot of other questions. Again, the other gospel writers add some other details here and there in this passage. But after surveying him, he says, I find no guilt in this man. What does it mean if somebody's not guilty? It means he's innocent. If there's anything you take away about Jesus from verses 1 through 25, is that he was innocent. And the whole New Testament makes us uh, confront the fact that Jesus never sinned. 
He was sinless. This is why He can forgive us of our sins. This is why He could stand in our place and take our sins upon Him. The righteous for the unrighteous, as 1 Peter 3.18 tells us. These people did not want to hear the truth. This is why they made these false accusations. They had to, in some way, drum up a case that wasn't actually there to be made. Richard Sibbs was a Puritan pastor who wrote nearly 400 years ago to the year in a book called The Bruised Reed. He said, Truth is truth, and error is error, and that which is unlawful is unlawful, whether men think so or not. You understand that? Our society calls good evil and evil good. They, they flip the two around. They tell you that you can do whatever you want with your body. You can do whatever you want uh, with your money, and so on. But I appreciate Richard Sibbs's clarity on this. Again, writing 400 years ago. In other words, things haven't changed in 400 years. You still have to confront lawlessness, sin, iniquity, transgression, all of these words that the Bible uses for sin. You have, you have to confront it in every generation. And Richard Sibbs was simply telling his congregation, we're going to stand on the truth even if it's not popular. And I just want to encourage you that that's what we're going to do here at Brainerd Avenue as well. And so if you want to hear the truth, we want you here every single week. If you don't want to hear the truth, we still want you here every single week so that you can hear the truth and the Spirit of God can use the Word of God to change your heart. Jesus endured false accusations in verses 1 through 5. In verses 6 through 9, Jesus endured political maneuvering. So the people tell Pilate in verse 5 that Jesus has been going all over the place preaching this kingdom of another world. He stirs up the people in so doing. It's almost like he's agitating like in a, a washing machine or something, getting people all worked up. And he's, he stirs them up all over the world and Pilate realizes, oh, maybe he's from a different place, which means I don't have to make this decision right now. It seems to me like Pilate is being cowardly. Like, I don't want to have to be the guy that, that makes this decision. So, in verse 7, he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. Herod's a great guy. We learn about him in chapter 3. He's the one who beheaded John the Baptist for his own pleasure and for the, for the sake of his family's pleasure. He's the one who, back in chapter 3, heard John the Baptist preaching. And because uh, John confronted his immoral relationship with his brother's wife, he had him thrown in jail. It was later on he had him beheaded, obviously. And so this is what we know about Herod. Is he's a terrible man, wicked man. And Pilate was happy to send him off to him. Let him make this decision. We don't exactly know all the details of what this would have looked like, but when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for a long desire to see him. We learned that back in chapter 9. Herod heard that uh, there was somebody doing crazy things across the countryside, healing the sick, giving blind to the uh, giving sight to the blind, giving hearing to the deaf, and on and on. And he thought, man, I've got to see this guy. This was back in the early verses of chapter 9. Here it is, again, he, he was glad because he had long desired to see him. He had heard about him. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. It's almost like when you go to the zoo, and you see some animal behind the glass, and he's doing something hilarious, and the crowd gets bigger and bigger and wants to watch. It seems like that's how Herod's treating Jesus here. Just like a zoo animal. Like Ivan the gorilla at the mall in, I think, Seattle, Washington a couple of decades ago. Stick a, a gorilla in the mall because it'll make people come to the mall. 
And here, Herod's saying, I want to see Jesus. I want to see him do some cool sign that I can tell my friends about. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. We don't have any idea what kinds of questions Herod asked him. In fact, this section that Luke records here is only recorded in Luke. We don't know this from Matthew, Mark, or John. So it seems that Luke had some kind of inside source in Herod's court, or in Pilate's court at least, as they conferred with one another. And so uh, Luke has some source by which he knows that this conversation happened. But again, Luke summarizes this as much as he can. It's super compact. He questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. So what did he ask him? Where'd you come from? How'd you get the power to do what you do? Do something for me? We have no idea, but we can certainly use our imagination a little bit there. But Jesus made no answer. Why was that? I mean, Jesus answered poor widowed ladies. Jesus answered prisoners. Jesus answered paralyzed people. Why wouldn't he answer this guy? He's authority. You would think Jesus should listen to him and, and have a conversation with him. Again, Jesus knew heart motives far more than, than we can even begin to understand. He knew what this man was asking. He's willing to answer honest questions at any time. But he wasn't going to play a game. He wasn't going to get into joking with Herod. But while this is going on in verse 10, well, that actually leads us into, into the third section here. Verses 10 through 12, Jesus endured mocking and scorn. So first, he endured false accusations. Secondly, political maneuvering where Pilate and Herod are just kind of passing Jesus back and forth. As we'll continue to see here, verses 10 through 12, Jesus endured mocking and scorn. We have these vehement accusations. We have them treating Jesus with contempt and mocking him, putting splendid clothing on him to mock his claim of being the king of the Jews. It was probably at this time that they gave him the crown of thorns. Luke leaves that out. We're not sure if that was because you know, he was a doctor and he didn't want to get into the gritty details of some of these things. Like, uh, so, I mean, he emphasized some physical details in some places and other places he totally leaves them out. So why Luke did that, we don't exactly know, but it's probably about this time that Jesus was given his crown of thorns, pressed onto his head. And essentially, this is again where we see that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Like, as long as you hate the Packers too, I like you a lot. And so this is where we're going to get along. Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day because before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Why do they hate each other? We don't know. Again, Luke leaves that out. We don't really have any other record of this historically. But you could kind of imagine that there's been some battle over the years of where the lines should be drawn, of who's responsible for what. Maybe Pilate hated some decisions that Herod made, and Herod hated some decisions that Pilate made, and they've made each other's lives miserable from a distance. Now, here they finally meet over Jesus himself, and they become friends. And they're kind of like, hey, let me shoot you my number, and we'll keep in touch. And they do this because of their mutual disdain for Jesus, mockery of Jesus. In verses 13 through 17 now, we see Jesus endured cowardly leaders. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he's going to say the same thing he said back in verses 1 through 5, especially, particularly back in verse 4. He calls these people back together. Look, I've talked to Herod. You brought me this man, he says in verse 14, as one who is misleading the people. I've examined him. And again, we see that some of this was with these people before him. Behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Second time he said, he's innocent. 
all these charges are false. You say that he's misleading the nation. I don't see it. You haven't given me a compelling case yet. So I'm going to let him go. Even Herod. You would think Herod would be able to come up with something. He didn't come up with anything either, he says. There's another claim for Jesus' innocence. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. So I'll punish and release him. Why does he say that? He actually says it again in verse 22. Why is he going to punish and release him? It's almost like his way to appease the masses. Like, you know what? I'm just going to warn him. I'm going to give him a good flogging so he doesn't do these same kinds of things. Maybe he'll learn to shut his mouth. Maybe he'll go back to Galilee and just get out of our land and leave us alone. We don't exactly know why he did this, but he did say it twice. He was pretty convinced this was going to help the situation. We'll flog him. We'll punish him. We'll release him. He'll be gone. Jesus endured cowardly leaders. Pilate could have said, because he was convinced of Jesus' innocence, he could have said, I've spoken. You listen. We're done here. The conversation's over. Stop bringing it back to me. Stop making these false charges. We're done. And then the guards push the guys out, close the doors, and the conversation's over. Human history changes. The plan of redemption changes ultimately as well. But we understand Pilate here is acting in a cowardly way. He could have said all this. He could have said, I'll hear no more of this. Instead, he's like, he just kind of throws a bone at them, another bone, besides the punishing and flogging. And this is where in verses 18 through 25, Jesus endured an unjust verdict. Jesus endured an unjust verdict. Perhaps in your Bible you have verse 17 here. Perhaps, like in mine, you don't have that here. Uh, I do have a footnote here. And I'll read you what my footnote says. It says here, after, uh, after verse 17, uh, I'm sorry, after verse 16, some manuscripts add verse 17. Now he was obliged to release one man to them at the festival. Here's what we know about that is Mark says that and Matthew says that. Luke doesn't actually say that, but it's almost as if the, the scribes who were you know, copying out uh, Luke were like, wait, where's that section about you know, the obligation to release a prisoner? Throw that in here. And so it got into some manuscripts here and there, but it's not in the best manuscripts. Did that happen? Yes. Matthew and Mark tell us that. I, I believe John does as well. I'm just saying that's, that's why there may not be a verse 17 in your copy of the Bible, depending on which translation you're looking at. But there is this tradition to release a prisoner here at Passover time. And so the people cry out together in verse 18, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. This is kind of like you know, when a president uh, get, get, frees someone, I think it was Governor Blagojevich a few years ago, I think it was Donald Trump that, that uh, got him out of jail early, perhaps because of some you know, um, col- uh, collaboration of some sort politically, All that to say, this isn't totally without precedent in in our own time even. But there's this yearly precedent, annual precedent, somebody's going to get released. I'm going to release Jesus so that you don't have to deal with him anymore. And they say, "Mm -mm, we don't want Jesus, we want Barabbas. And Luke wants us to know who Barabbas is so much that he says it twice. He doesn't have to give this parenthetical statement in verse 19 because he's going to say it in verse 25. But he does it anyway. What's he trying to do? Show the pristine innocence of Jesus and the foul mockery that these people were making of the criminal justice system. Foul mockery they're making of God himself. 
sometimes when someone is going through an intense job interview, people will try and drudge up all the dirt they can get so that there's no surprises. So they might assign somebody to say, you go find all the dirt on this guy you can possibly find. Talk to all of his previous coworkers. Talk to his friends. Google him till you're blue in the face and get all the dirt you have so that there's no surprises later down the road. It was almost like all the digging they did, they only found him to be cleaner than they expected him to be. There was nothing there. They couldn't find anything to pin him on. And so, uh, but they treated him like a criminal anyway. They should have treated Barabbas like a violent criminal because that's what he was. That's what Luke wants you to know in verse 19 and in verse 25. Jesus himself was innocent. Luke couldn't make this any clearer. Herod found him that way. Pilate found him that way three different times. They couldn't find any actual basis for treating Jesus like a violent criminal, but they did anyway. The reason they couldn't was because he is sinless. Second. Corinthians 5.21 tells us this. Hebrews 4.15 tells us this. 1 Peter 1.19 tells us he's blameless. 1 John 3.5 echoes this. On and on we could go. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, never sinned. They couldn't find anything he had done. But they did have a guy who everybody knew had been a murderer. Imagine being related to the person that Barabbas had murdered. I just read a story of, I think about five years ago, a group of teenage boys in Michigan threw a, a, a large six-pound rock down on I-75 uh, from an overpass and threw this rock down, and it killed this guy in, in a van sitting in the front seat. And all those teenagers served like a handful of months in prison. And there was a news article about how the family of the guy were angry that this, fa- this husband and father of four is dead because these teenagers, these hooligans, were throwing a rock down off this overpass and they got a slap on the wrist. Yeah, I'd be angry too. Well, imagine being the one who Barabbas murdered, being related to the one that Barabbas murdered. And we don't even know how many he murdered. Just knows that he, they just know everybody knew he was a murderer. And they're saying, yeah, we want that guy freeing on the streets. Yeah, he started an insurrection. No problem. Let's get him rather than Jesus. Do you realize today, sitting here, in this story, you're Barabbas? You're the guilty one? Stuart Townend wrote a song. We we sing several songs about a guy named Stuart Townend. One of them is called, I don't think we've sung here, but uh, at least since I've been here, it's called When Love Came Down. And in this song, he says, The innocent is cursed, the guilty are released. The punishment of God on God has brought me peace. You understand that Jesus was the innocent one, not you? You are the guilty one, not him? But you get what Jesus deserved. Jesus got what you deserved. This should stun you. And I want to encourage you to, to meditate on this truth. To consider that Jesus never lied. But but you have. Jesus never lusted. You have. Jesus never stole. Even if it's just time or or, uh, a pen from your employer. Jesus never stole a thing. You have. I think I can safely say these things. But you get what Jesus deserved. And he gets what you deserved. Barabbas, though, as this murderer, this insurrectionist, 
this one who revolts against the government, was delivered. And Jesus was delivered over to the will of this angry mob. Jesus himself had prophesied this. All I'm saying by that is that this was happening all according to the plan of God. So Jesus knew this in advance. In Luke 18, verse 32, he says of himself, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. That's Luke 18, 32. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He called it as it was. Peter, in retrospect, writes about this in Acts 3, verse 13. Let me read this to you. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. This is Peter just telling the truth to Jewish leaders and reminding them, this is on you. But back in, in chapter 2 of Luke, I'm sorry, of Acts, which was written by Luke, Peter tells us that Jesus died all according to the predestined plan of God. All of this was happening according to God's time, in God's place, in God's way. What do we learn here about Pilate? You see him really being convinced of the innocence of Jesus. He had no doubt about it. He's asking these questions over and over again. He's trying to get all the information he can Even his enemy clears Jesus. Okay, there's nothing to see here. That's what I thought. But he's listening to the crowd. And you notice the way that Luke describes this in verse 23. They were urgent. The only other place he says that is back in verse 5. They were urgent. And their voices prevailed. What's that make you think of? Have you heard of any CEOs losing their jobs? because people don't like the policies that he uh, put in place? Have you ever heard of coaches losing their jobs because the athletes don't like the way that he makes them work out or whatever else? People lose their minds in public, and it gets an uproar, and so then people have to act on it. And this is what we see happening here. This cowardly leader, Pilate, is willing to let the voices prevail. He did not have to do it. But because he did, probably 40 Sundays out of the year between the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, we affirm together that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And this happens around the world as people affirm these creeds together, reminding ourselves of the gospel that Jesus himself suffered as the innocent Lamb of God. But Pilate was a politician. He was going to do what worked. He was going to do what made the people happy. He was looking out for his political future. He wanted his job. He wanted to do what was going to work in his favor. And so when the voices prevailed, he was thinking of himself. He was thinking of perhaps his, his wife, who in the Gospel of Matthew said, don't have anything to do with that man. I had nightmares about him last night. So maybe Pilate's thinking of his wife here. He was trying to get the crowd to leave him alone. He was doing what was convenient. We do the same thing. And we see here Pilate's fear of man, and I want to urge you to fight hard against the fear of man, against letting people sway you, letting your coworkers sway you on on what you believe. This is what Jesus endured for you. Can you believe it? 
all of this evil before he even got to the cross. If Jesus endured all this for you, what can you, by his grace, endure? Can you endure having a boss who makes life miserable? Can you endure singleness or life in a hard marriage or having special needs children? Can you have friends and family disown you because of your faith in the gospel? Could you lose your spouse to cancer, to divorce, to any number of problems? Could you endure poverty or false accusations? Jesus gives you the grace to endure these and any other trial with the same grace with which he endured his mocking and suffering. A young man I know recently went through Marine Boot Camp. And some of you perhaps have heard of this or even experienced uh, that they go through something called the crucible. And so over the course of 54 hours, the recruits march 40 miles. They only eat two and a half MREs. They sleep eight hours over the course of these two plus days. To survive such an experience, being out in the elements, no matter what the elements are, for 50, again, I think it's 54 hours, my friend told me. To survive, you need courage. You need perseverance. You also need people propping you up. You need other soldiers marching alongside of you saying, we can do this together. Keep going. Holding each other's hands along the way, so to speak. Spiritually, maybe you're going through the crucible right now, or maybe you're about to and you don't realize it by the grace of God. But Paul tells Timothy, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus, our captain. Look to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Paul meditates on the suffering of Jesus in Philippians 2, a passage we looked at on Wednesday nights a few months ago. And he uses what Jesus endured to call the Christians in Philippi to lay aside their quabbles. Like, stop the dumb bickering about nonsense these disagreements that don't matter. You're doing the most important work in the world, shining as a light in this world. You're following Jesus and proclaiming His truth in a world of error. In a dark place, you're shining as the light. Church family, when we have petty disputes about something here, we threaten the unity we have in Christ. And so I want to urge you to remember the suffering of Christ and recall the great unity we have because of the gospel, because of what Jesus endured on our behalf. As Paul said, let us do all things without grumbling and disputing. We fight those sins of grumbling and disputing with one another because we see that Jesus endured the wrath of hateful men so that he could accomplish redemption on our behalf. This is what this passage is telling us. So live your life then for his glory. Many of those hurt and affected by the Vancouver riots in June of 2011 could say they were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. They never should have been there in the first place. One of the reasons they should have said that was because the last time the Canucks had lost in the Stanley Cup, the same thing had happened in 1994. But maybe, should we say the same thing about Jesus, that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time? We should not conclude that. All of human history was peaking at this moment. This was happening the way that God wrote the script. This was the destined day that we often sing about here. This was the seed of the woman crushing the seed of the serpent while everyone was watching, thinking this was the seed of the serpent crushing the seed of the woman. They thought evil was prevailing. Instead, it was the other way around. It was so that the 
we would be freed from the poisonous grip of the serpent on our hearts. So praise God for Jesus, who suffered in our place at the hands of wicked men so that he could redeem us. Let's close in prayer, church family. Lord, we honor you today. Unlike those dozens or hundreds or so that were there that day, shouting loudly with their voices prevailing by saying, crucify, crucify him. Instead, today we have adored you by singing that you allowed mere men to nail you down. But even before that, Christ himself suffered so greatly on our behalf. We pray that you would cause joy and love for him to well up in our hearts. And as a result, love for one another to well up in our hearts. That you would give us hearts of forgiveness and patience and tenderness. And that it would be difficult for us to be offended by one another. And we would have no desire whatsoever to offend others. Because we have surveyed what Christ did even before the cross. So we thank you for Christ and pray that we would live for his glory all our days. In his name, amen.